Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. We used to work together. I never worked in the funeral home. Today we are discussing Men in Black 2. This is your co-host Corbin. I'm Alan. Alan, I am assuming you haven't seen this one. Yes, this is the one I have not seen basically any of. Uh, like I mentioned before in the past podcast, I've seen a a good chunk of the first one, but aside from that, that's really the only, I guess, uh, Men in Black that I have been subjected to. So, like I mentioned in the last one, aside from what I've seen before in the first one, of course, now we've reviewed it, but uh, I have not seen two, three, or I guess uh, the next one. I guess the next one is international, so I guess I haven't seen any of that, but yeah. Listeners, if you're just joining us on our Men in Black retrospective series for the first time, don't forget to go back and listen to the first episode in the retrospective movie review series. That link will be in the description below. Very easy to find. Go ahead and listen to that first because this film is a direct sequel from that first movie, so they will bring up certain things or lack thereof, and we will talk about those. So just so you're in the loop, go ahead and check that out. Also, if you are looking for some extra bonus podcasts or our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, or you want to do a Q&A with us or even want some audio commentaries from us, go ahead and head on over to our Patreon page and check all of that out. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and even email if you so choose. So, I guess, let's see here. Men in Black 1 came out in 97, right? Yes, it did. And so, we didn't exactly get a sequel until, what is it, 2002? Yeah, it took about five years. But something interesting I did find out was there was an animated TV series. That's right. Yeah, they when the first one came out, they had an animated TV series and a video game. And I I mean, it was based off the comics. I'm sure that there was even a comic book based off of the movie so there was a lot of stuff <laughs> tied into the very first movie which i mean in reality isn't too surprising to me no especially considering the first movie was wildly successful grossing half a billion dollars right so it doesn't surprise me that they could easily take this premise and make it into a kid show right yeah it's kind of like what was it rambo had a tv series at one point right yeah and we 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 talked a little bit about that during our rambo retrospective now it is a bit different because rambo is more of a hard it's more of a it's it's a rated r movie so it's more of an adult film than this one this isn't this this one's definitely geared towards all ages Mm -hmm. but it is still kind of funny that i mean that, that seems to be a running thing with uh shows like this where uh if they can have a cartoon adaptation they will have a cartoon adaptation and i just learned recently that the alien franchise was going to have a cartoon adaptation they had like kind of produced an episode at least you can see stills from it so it seems like around the 90s ish period from that decade to the 2000s uh, this was kind of a popular thing to do. It aired on the WB Kids from on Saturday mornings. No surprise there. Yeah. From October eleventh, ninety seven. So just not long after the first movie came out, and then it quit uh, about a year before this Men in Black two came out. So okay. June thirtieth, two thousand one, and it did win an Emmy for outstanding sound editing. Really? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. 
Well, I did a little background and did a little background research to see what exactly, if there was anything that I guess we would consider to be juicy in terms of filmmaking yeah. and in terms of especially the, uh, the making of. There wasn't too much. Um, there was something kind of interesting. The the script was done by two people, so it was written by a man by a by a. It was written by a man named Robert Gordon, and then revised by another guy named Barry uh, Benaro. And he was the guy who added in a bunch of pop culture references, and that was something that Gordon didn't really want to have in there. Um, that's kind of interesting. Another interesting fact is Twin Towers. So this movie mm-hmm. came out after 9-11. Yep. And there was, I think the original, yeah, the original climax was going to take place. I think the Twin Towers were going to be like in the background. Yeah. And then because of 9-11, they had to take that out. They had to reshoot the entire ending and a few other scenes that had those towers in it. Um, I don't know how far that set them back, but I just do know that the ending was a bit different um, because it would have had the Twin Towers. And I'm guessing there was maybe something different this overall with how it was laid out. Um, then yes, the last time we talked about the original Men in, Men in Black being based off of a Marvel comic, and in the opening credits, I saw that it was based off of Malibu Comics, and the research there is pretty much the same thing, Marvel bought Malibu Comics, so I guess technically we're still talking about a Marvel comic here. Yeah, it is interesting, because Marvel and DC, they both own kind of these, like, subsidiary comics, so right. movies like... The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, for instance, right, is right. technically a DC movie, but it's, I don't think it completely is. Um, yeah, it's also interesting to note how 9-11 affected the film industry because yeah, we recently yeah. reviewed Signs and right. Signs was supposed to start filming on 9-11. 9-11 happened. They thought, okay, I think they started. Then they just decided to take the day off, of course, and they shot the next day. But it was a little difficult for them going forward. So we can see, even for this movie, um, they had to reshoot the whole ending. Right. Uh, which makes sense. It was a pretty sensitive time. Right. So it's best to kind of not go there. Right. And Steven Spielberg did return as an executive producer. That isn't much of a surprise, though, because he was in the first one. Uh, I think he was also the executive producer there as well. Uh, and then he also returned for this one. That's usually what he does if he is on for the first uh, first iteration of, a, of, I guess, an ongoing series or what will become an ongoing series. He'll do, continue to return for the rest of them. I think he does the same thing with Transformers, actually. I think he's an executive producer on all of those movies. Oh, my goodness. If I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so, yeah, no surprise here. In terms of score, it's kind of interesting, to say the least, because IMDb, at the time of this recording, was a 6.1. Yeah. With a Metacritic score of 49, which is uh, not great. At least not compared to the first one, which we consider to be pretty admirable. With it, I think it's, what, 7.3, right? Yeah, 7.3. Oh, yeah. It, it was a major drop. It was a major drop from 7.3. But audiences liked it just mm-hmm. as well as the first one because audiences gave the first movie a B plus and they gave the second movie a B plus. Right. And... It seems like it. It seems like the audiences tended to like it, um, at least in terms of cinema score when this movie was released. But uh, critics were not too happy about it because, like I mentioned earlier, Metacritic scores are forty nine, which is not great. But the Rotten Tomatoes scores are thirty nine percent. So it seems like uh, critics were not too fond of this movie when it was released. Yeah, considering ninety two percent of critics recommended the first film, right. they thought it was. They gave it a positive rating and only 39% of critics the next one. So right. and from what I understand, 
that's the general consensus. Even if you look on Letterboxd and people's ratings on there as well, you can tell across all of these uh, different like ratings kind of mm-hmm. aggregators, it's a sharp decline. Now, whether yeah. we think it's whether we think that's true or not, well, that remains to be seen. Right. So budget. Uh, last time the budget was ninety million, which is I mean that's pretty all right for. A Hollywood movie, but yeah. this time it was they upped it by fifty million and had and so they had a hundred forty million dollar budget this time around. So that's that's pretty big, especially for two thousand two. In terms of box office opening weekend, they made fifty two point one million, which is uh, not too great. <laughs> um, domestically, uh, overall, they made one hundred ninety point four million. Foreign, they made two hundred fifty one point four million with a grand total of four hundred forty one point eight million dollars, which is not more than the original, which had $589.4 million, which is interesting because we've noted before on this podcast that uh, when the first one, when the first movie in a series does really well, the second one would do even better. We noticed this with Rainbow 2 and a few other movies that we've talked about that have sequels. But this time around, it seems to be doing the opposite, where the first one did great and the second one did good, but not as good as the first one did. And I think the reason that is is because they didn't capitalize on the the huge momentum of the first movie. It took them five years to get out right. a sequel. And if you get that sequel out pretty quickly, then audiences are going to be very much eager to see that sequel. Five years, it's that's half a decade. It's right. like faded from some memories. So I can see why it still did – I mean it still did pretty well for itself, but – um, probably not as well as they were hoping. Right. And I mean, yeah, it did do very well. It made double its budget and then some. So it's not like it, you know, flopped the box office at all. But at the same time, if they were going for it to do better than the first one, then it didn't do that. And in terms of budget ratio with the money, money it made in the box office, so the first one still does much better because the budget was much lower and it made more money uh, with its theatrical run than the second one did. So, yeah, I, mean, I think you're right. I think that with the issues of, you know, it not being a sequel not being released for a half a decade, uh, that may have been some part of the reason why it didn't do so hot when it came out in the box office, which then again, it's not that bad. It still do very, it still did very good in the box office and made very good money. But at least comparing it to the first one, uh, it's not as successful. Also, another very popular thing to do at the time was video game tie-ins. Right. So right, right. this received a video game tie-in called Men in Black 2 Alien Escape that was actually released June 28th, like a week before the movie came out. And it was originally made for PS2, but it was ported to GameCube the next year. IGN gave it a 4 out of 10. Oof. A lot of other reviewers also gave it a similar rating and i i remember i never played this one but i did play video game tie-ins a lot i remember playing a fantastic four one with my sister just lots of tie-ins was super popular toys books games right i would say probably the most popular in or maybe not the most popular but at least the most uh well-regarded video game tie-in to a movie is spider-man 2 which is considered to be Mm. one of if not the greatest superhero uh video game of all time but this is also Men in Black 2 we're talking about. So I actually haven't heard of this like at all. That I didn't even know that there was a video game tie-in until doing research on this movie, finding out that they had released it alongside this theatrical release, which is, I mean, not that big of a surprise to me because you're right. Their video game tie-ins were uh, very much a thing at this time of the 
at this time of especially of cinema. But yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't really surprise me that I haven't heard about it because I guess it wasn't really that good, at least according to IGN. I may or may not have given away my copy of Spider-Man 2. Yeah, that's right. I bought it off you. Did, what, was that you? Yeah, I have it at home. What? Yeah. Oh, I thought I gave it away to one of our other friends. Oh, no, that was me. Okay. I have it. <laughs> now I remember. Yes, I did. I did give that to you. Okay, at least I didn't give it away to, like, Goodwill, like I did with my Star Wars and Jaws VHSs, which I'm kind of like, why did I do that? Why? That would look good on my shelf now. I think everybody who has something of worth when they're younger, and then they're like, well, this is worthless. (laughs) I got the Blu-rays now. And then you're like, wait, wait a minute. I take it back. Take it back, back. but I can't. (laughs) Dang it. Well, is it time for the plot, or do you have more to talk about? Uh, the one last thing is uh, Danny Elfman is back That's with right. the score. That's right, he is back. Um, as far as his score goes, some of it makes me think of like Edward Scissorhands. Danny Elfman kind of has a very similar feel with some of his scores. Mm-hmm. A little creepy, a little ethereal with these like, you know, angelic type voices. Um, otherwise, that's the only signature thing I noticed from Danny Elfman. Yeah. I didn't notice anything else. Yeah, it sounded kind of the same to me. And I remember noting in the last podcast that I wasn't too taken away by the score here. I thought it was fine, but nothing great. Um, sounds relatively the same with this iteration of the score from Danny Elfman. There will come a time, not yet in Danny Elfman's career, but in a few years after this movie, where all of his scores tend to sound about the same. Um, and... He's not, at least not as well regarded as a composer in terms of originality with all of his scores as he used to be. But uh, this one, it sounds, like I said, it sounds relatively the same as the first one uh, to a point where I just kind of stopped noticing it. Well, listeners, we are about to get into all the juicy, spoilery details of Men in Black 2. So if you haven't seen Men in Black 2 and you don't want the movie spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and rent the movie, watch it, come back and click play, and we'll be ready to talk about all of the details. Five years after the events of the first Men in Black, Agent J is trying to find a replacement partner after losing Agent K to return to his old life. After neuralizing yet another rookie, another rookie MIB agent, J returns to MIB HQ and is sent to investigate a murder at a pizzeria. Here, J meets Laura, a worker and witness of the crime. Jay gets information that he needs from her and goes to neuralize her, but decides against it. Come to find out, an evil alien named Sir Lena has come to Earth in search of an object called the Light of Zartha. After some time, after some more investigative work, Jay finds out that he must reinstate his old partner Kay, as he knows the most about the light. Kay go Kay works as a postmaster in a small Massachusetts town, and once Jay shows up with and once Jay shows him that he works with aliens, Kay agrees to come with him. Turns out MIB has a, de-neur- has a de-neuralizer machine that can bring back old memories that have been flashed away. However, before K can begin this process, Serlina attacks the MIB HQ, causing Agents J and K to escape and head to Jeebs, who owns, the, who owns an illegal de-neuralizer in his shop that was built after the plans were leaked online. The machine magically works and K regains most of his memory, except for one important thing. He doesn't remember much about the light as he flashed it away years ago for safety reasons. Luckily for him, he left clues to get to the light in just in case the worst came to worse. J and K with Laura in tow follow the clues K laid out for himself. A picture in his old coat pocket leads him to the pizzeria shop where he gets his keys to a locker in Grand Central Station. Inside this locker is an alien civilization which gives K a watch and a video rental membership card. 
At this video store, there is a copy of an alien conspiracy theory show with an episode that explores the story of an old of an old Men in Black mission that Kay was a part of. Turns out, Kay sent Serlina a, on a wild rocket chase. On a wild rocket chase. Turns out, Kay sent Serlina on a wild rocket chase while he hid the light with someone else here on Earth after the Zartha Queen died in his arms. Kay remembers that Laura has the light in a bracelet, but Serlina kidnaps Laura before Jay and Kay can get to her. The two agents with the four worms return to the MIB HQ and to stop the launch of Serlina's op- to stop the launch of the Serlina's rocket. In order to save the Earth, Laura needs to hop onto a spaceship atop one of the a building in New York City with a triangle-shaped rooftop window that, at a specific time, so the light can be returned to Zartha before it explodes, taking the Earth with it. Kay convinces Laura to do so, and the Earth is saved. Back at MIB HQ, Kay, Frank, and Zed try to cheer up Jay after losing Laura. Kay decides to show Jay that Earth itself is also inside of a locker, and the outside of that locker are more aliens that are much that are much larger than they are. Cut to black, roll credits. Okay, so can we agree on like two to three things right off the bat? The plot moves at lightning speed. Oh yeah, I had <sighs> to spend, I think I took an extra half an hour pausing it, writing down my notes so I can catch up with the movie, and then playing it again. Yeah, this movie moves. Like one of our criticisms of the last one was, although it was enjoyable for the most part, there was a good section of it where it was kind of boring. This one, I don't think I can say it's boring because, it, like you said, it moves lightning speed. And the second thing is, can we agree that the story structure is almost the same as the last one? Yeah, to a fault, I would say, because yeah, it feels. Oddly similar to, like, like I mentioned, to a fault where, at least to a point where it just kind of feels like we're kind of recycling plot points that were already present in the first one. Okay, and the third one is when we get towards the end and things start to be revealed, I'm already semi-confused on this whole light of Zartha and who has the light and what's going on and then we get the twist with rosario dawson Mm -hmm. at this point when i first saw it with my girlfriend this this january we both were like i don't even know what's going on yeah at this point it's like what and it's just like just just go with it it's like okay (laughs) whatever yeah the the story of this uh, the story of this movie is uh i would say although it does take a lot from the first one i think it also kind of falls short of at least correctly revealing information the right way because yeah the light of zartha i don't know why serlina wants it or why laura is the one who has it aside from that Kay was the one who decided that she needs to be the one who has it i guess um everything just kind of feels like happenstance for the most part like they just got caught in between a lady who wants the light for whatever reason and they also need light because it's also going to explode it like I said, it feels like this story isn't told nearly as, I guess, convincingly as the previous one. Right. This movie really doesn't take much time. They try and give us this opening setup, which I like. I think it's a fairly creative opening where it's called Mysteries in History. And they it's like this old guy recounting some possibly leaked information that is a conspiracy theory, but we come to find out that it's true, of course, in 19, talking about in 1978, and come to find out, of course, Kay is the one involved with this whole Zartha and right. Serlina, 
uh, reenactment and we get his memories of it. So, I mean, it's a fun setup. Yeah, and I do like the setup, but I also kind of wish that at least the video would come back as more of an important plot device than just one time. And also, I guess the reason why I say that is because uh, we find out that Kay flashed away his memories um, of this event to save the Earth, right? That's fine. Not a big deal. And later on in the in the ending of the first one, Jay flashes K, and so he goes back to what his life was before he was an MIB agent. But in the beginning of this one, he's deneuralized, which makes me ask the question, well, if he's deneuralized, then that would mean that he would remember his memories of where he hid the light, correct? Um... Because the deneuralizer take, will grab old memories that were flashed away and bring them back. Yes, I guess that's how he knows it's in the the bracelet. He only figures that out because he has his memory does come back to him after he watches the movie. Oh gosh! And so that's why I'm confused. Is because I feel like we're just wasting time, especially a good. There's a good chunk of this movie where it's just J and K going on a more or less a witch hunt to find where exactly is this light at and following his clues that he laid out for himself in case that he needed it. But just I'm just curious to know why they. Why that they made this a plot point because if they're following their own rules here, where if you're de-neuralized, all of your neuralized memories come back, well, the uh, the light location, all that stuff that deals with the light would also come back because that was de-neuralized. We talk, he talks about how he neuralized himself of all that information. So I feel like that would come back too, right? Technically, that's true. You're correct. Um, they move through it so fast mm-hmm. that... I I missed I missed it. I I didn't even think about it. Um because this movie jumps from A to B so quickly, you like barely yeah. even see them jump and you're just they just want you to go along for this roller coaster ride and if if he did get those memories back, then this movie would be a lot shorter and it's not even an hour and a half. Yeah, it's 88 minutes. And I'll talk about this a bit later, but honestly, this whole plot in the show would have worked better as a 45-minute or hour-long TV episode. Yeah, I think you're correct in that. There does seem to be quite a bit of filler here. Uh, Once again, the villain... Okay, I'll say this much. I think I like Serlina a little bit better than the previous villain we have because at least we get some character out of her. With Bug, there is literally literally nothing to him. <laughs> yeah, nothing. He was, he was just an obstacle in... The, in the way of our heroes. That's really all he was. There was nothing to his character. And, I mean, there really wasn't much to any character in that movie. But at least with this one, they do take time to explore Jay's character, at least in the opening. And they do take time to explore Serlina's character to a to a, a little bit. We don't really explore Kay's character very much. But I, I'll say this one, in terms of positives, uh, for right now, Jay and Serlina, or at least Jay and the villain, are explored more than they were in the previous movie, which I do like a lot more than than just blank slates. Yeah, and they also try and give Jay some emotion or some obstacle. He wants to have a relationship, and he can't, and he thinks that Laura, which there's like three characters named like Laura, Laurel, Lauren, yeah, um, which yeah. just kind of goes to confuse me a little bit more because the person who he thought was going to be his partner in the end of the last movie, Laurel, mm-hmm is nowhere to be found yeah there's a drop line in here that laurel uh wanted to go back to being a corner and so he so jay flashed her 
I mean, neuralized her, I guess is a better way of putting that. <laughs> Jay neuralized her, and she went back to her old job, apparently. That's really the only thing that we hear, and that's the reason why she's not in this movie. Maybe there was no contract for me, or there was a scheduling issue. I'm not sure. But we do know that she's not here because she went back to her old job because she wanted to. And I th- I'm guessing the reason why they named the love interest here Laura is because, I mean, for one, she's relating to Lor- was it Lorana, who is the, uh, the queen of Zartha. It's her daughter. Right, yeah. And so they're related already, which kind of already brings into the fact that she's going to be the one who has the light. And then you've also got Laurel, which is connected to Laura, which is kind of like a callback to the original movie for him to, remember, for him to really realize that uh, he maybe could begin a relationship with this lady, just like he had with Laurel in the previous movie. So, I mean, I understand why they did it, but you are correct. It is kind of confusing. And it, I mean, it's like the most like shallow of emotions they touch yeah. upon. I yeah. At first, I kind of liked it that he is very lonely yeah. now that... K is gone. He doesn't have a female companion whatsoever. Nobody's working out for him. And it's uh, it's kind of sad there in the end where Laura, he's like, hey, I think this could have worked. You seem pretty in tune with this. And then she has to go away. And um, does she like blow up or something? Laurel or uh, Laura? Laura, yeah. Uh, no, she flies away with the star or with the, with the light. Where do those fireworks come from? That, okay, those fireworks... Uh, I'm guessing we're from uh, Serlina. Going up up. Serlina? Yeah. Okay. Don't ask me why. That's just how it is. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, sure. (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, Okay. So, I mean, I kind of like like that, like a bit of emotion. At least they're trying something. Right. But according to the director, Barry Sonnenfeld, he didn't even want that. He didn't want there to be any hint of a relationship between... Mm. Um, Will Smith and Rosario Dawson. Right. He's like, I don't like this. This is stupid. And yeah, in its current form, it's like I said, it's shallow, but yeah. at least they're trying something. Yeah, I agree with that. They're actually exploring Jay's character, you know, for once. They didn't really do that in the last one, which I know both of us kind of complained about. And at least with this one, you know, they're exploring something. And that's not really anything super deep and nothing, you know, super engaging. <laughs> but it's, it's something there. It starts off, honestly, kind of interestingly on a, on a low note after this opening action scene with Patrick Warburton. Which I, I Okay, I love Patrick Warburton. Yeah. I think he's hilarious. And it's unfortunate that he's only here for the opening, but I understand why. He's more of a cameo. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen more of him. I, yeah, I thought that I was really cool. He's Agent T. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Warburton was funny. Um, I think he would be perfect for this movie because he has such oh, yeah. a dry sense of humor and like he would take things that would like shock other people about mm-hmm. aliens. He would take it in such a dry, bl- blank. You know, I, I think he would be good. But yeah, he's yeah. barely in it. And this movie kind of has a thing where they want to like throw in as many cameos as possible. Yeah, which I think is what they're referring to the pop culture references because yep. Patrick Warburton was on Seinfeld, and then we get Johnny Knoxville who plays a, a bit of a bigger part. We get mm-hmm. Michael Jackson in a cameo. Yeah, strange cameo. Yeah. We also get Nick Cannon, mm-hmm. which would appeal to the younger audiences. He was on Nickelodeon at the time. Um, is this this movie doesn't have anything to do with Nickelodeon, does it? I don't think so. I mean, no, I don't think so at all. Okay. No, I, I couldn't remember if it was like Nickelodeon yeah. Studios or something. No, no, it wouldn't be Nickelodeon. I don't even know if, well, they may have been a thing around 2002. I can't. I don't. I don't really keep up with that. I don't but know. Aside from yeah, aside from the pop culture references for a moment, yeah, I do like that we are 
getting into some character with Jay here. Once again, not think much that's really there. There's much substance. At least with the last one, it was kind of about Kay's character and how he's getting ready to move on and passing on the torch to the younger generation. But now it's kind of flipped where this movie, in, in reality, it's kind of a movie about loneliness because at least with Jay's character, he's, he's battling with this idea that maybe he's going to be just alone for the rest of his life, which he's really young. So I can, it's totally understandable why he would be somebody who was, you know, kind of facing this idea and this kind of struggle of, well, I'm just, I might just be lonely for the rest of my life and decides not to, not to neuralize Laura here in this opening. I do wish, unfortunately, once Kay gets his memory back, they kind of drop that and they don't really explore it kind of until the end. And that's only kind of just mentioned instead of actually being explored. So, yeah, I do wish the film gave us time to breathe for both Jay and Kay because Mm -hmm. Kay was lonely as well. He wanted to be with that woman and he... I, I think we were led to assume he was denuralized, so then he could go have a life with her. I believe we saw like a picture of that in the end of the last movie. Yeah, yeah. He they they covered up his disappearance with a coma, and he was able to return back to his wife. But then we learned that in this movie they divorced each other. Or she left him or something. Yeah, which is strange. Which is strange, and it's kind of like even without the Men in Black, he still can't really have happiness. He's still kind of mm-hmm. alone. Uh, I don't. I don't really understand the point of um, everybody who works at the post office is an alien. So they bring this up. There's a drop line where K- or Jay says, "This is why you're so comfortable here. It's because you're working with aliens. You know that you've worked with here at MIB. I mean, it's kind of weak. Don't get me wrong, but it, that is something. The reason that is the reason why he's working with aliens is because he." They, t- they mentioned that he's comfortable here. And then because of that, because he's so comfortable here, uh, this because he's working with other aliens, which, I mean, that was part of his job at MIB. Like I said, kind of weak. Okay, I wasn't sure if they were trying to make another st- statement like in the beginning of the first movie where people crossing the border are truly illegal aliens. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that. This one seemed a lot weaker um, than the last one. Yeah, in terms of thematic stuff, there isn't. Yeah, it's much weaker than the original because, yeah, the original opened with illegal aliens getting ready to cross the border. And that was, and that movie kind of dealt with, I mean, aliens both in the, uh, I guess, more in the political climate as well as also in uh, kind of a science fiction realm as well. This one doesn't really do much with that. Uh, I also should mention that the villain, Serlina, played by Laura Flynn Boyle, is also mm-hmm. another Twin Peaks character. We had a the giant from the last movie was a Twin Peaks character, so um, Twin Peaks, I think, would have been done by this point. Yeah, 2002, I think you're right. So, but still, I guess Twin Peaks might have been a little popular. People would have known about that. But right. nevertheless, I'm kind of like, God's oh, it's interesting, two Twin Peaks characters. Right. Okay. Now, the introduction of Sir Lena is kind of interesting. It is kind of funny, too, because you see this rocket flying by and just blowing up planets. And you think, oh, it's just this unstoppable force. And when it lands on Earth, it's like this really small rocket and this small worm comes out. It is kind of funny. um, But this kind of comes with the first, I guess, the first joke of the movie where this guy pops out and he tries to uh, take advantage of Serlina, which (laughs) doesn't work for him, work out for him. It's a strange joke because it comes literally out of nowhere. And so fast that before I even had time to realize what's going on here, he's dead. Yeah, because she, like, ate him. Yeah. 
Yeah. And she has this huge distended belly. Right. It's weird. It's also slightly uncomfortable that the the, the main villain is in their lingerie, essentially, yeah. for the whole movie. I don't know what they were trying to go for with they're, that. <laughs> they're following with this trope with kind of like Transformers and a lot of other – a lot of other alien movies tend to do this where they can shapeshift into pretty much anything that they see or maybe even any human that they see. So the first thing that we – that the – that Selena – sees is a Victoria's Secret model and decides to morph into that. It's an interesting choice. I'm, I know it's there just for gags, but it it's an interesting choice for a movie that is PG-13. And I will say this movie does have a lot more, I guess, sexual innuendos in it than the first one did. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Um, I also noticed that uh, Rosario Dawson's acting isn't uh, the best. She's not yeah. very believable in these scenes. <laughs> yeah, she does okay, but yeah, you're right. It isn't anything... Isn't really anything, I guess, spectacular here. Uh, I I find Johnny Knoxville's side villain character to be utterly pointless. Yeah, I mean, he is a... a it's an interesting idea to have a two-headed alien, but they don't really do too much with it. Like, you would think that maybe... Because the trope is that they're, at least from what I've seen with, I guess, two-headed aliens is... At least one that has, like, you know, the kind of, like, this subhead, where one of them is uh-huh. just much smaller than the other one. Usually, he, like, notices things around and, like, bosses around the, the first, the, the bigger guy. But that's not really how that works here. In fact, there really isn't, they don't really do too much with the head in this one. It just kind of, like you said, kind of feels rather pointless. pointless. It's just there because they needed some kind of cool alien design, I guess. So... Well, we can tell where all of the CGI budget went is mm-hmm. to creating a floating head next to Johnny Knoxville because I think the rest of the CGI is bad. I would say, yeah, it is 2002, so I can give it a little bit of grace because CGI definitely wasn't nearly as mature as it is now and won't be for a while. But you are right. They do use a lot more CGI here, and it does not age very well at all. Um, That's one of the things I... I do kind of knock the film for is it does over it it uses CGI to a point where I mean it's it kind of takes begins to take away from the film especially here in the future many years after it's been released you can totally tell when something's CGI like the head itself may not be CGI but the neck and the extension onto the body is definitely CGI and that's very noticeable I thought Jeff the worm was bad yeah. the Serlina giant alien fight at the end yeah. Rosario Dawson going off in the spaceship. It all looked incredibly cheap to me. Yeah, there's a lot of use, especially in this opening, I think is where it's probably most noticeable. Where with uh, with Will Smith riding on Jeff, you can tell they're using a green screen and it is really noticeable. Uh, the worm itself is very, very it's, it's CGI, but it, it doesn't look too realistic. I will say this, it is better than the original in terms of CGI because with the last one, one of the things we complained about was Bug and how it, doesn't look great because it's all CGI. Um, it is better than the original, and that makes sense because that happened five years ago. But the CGI now is definitely dated. It is. We're definitely talking about. I mean, this movie is. Oh gosh, uh, it's getting it's getting close to two decades now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it makes sense why it wasn't look good, but it is there, and it really doesn't look good. So one of the major hinges of the movie is Kay being deneuralized and mm-hmm. just in order for him to come back into the movie, he has to be deneuralized. Alan, you're a 
What'd you get? A psychology minor? Yeah, psychology minor. And we talked about memory in one of my... Actually, one of my classes was pretty much... We had a whole section, uh, my cognitive psychology class, where we talked about memory. Um, so deneuralization, I can... I'm guessing now I'm looking way too deep into this, but I do kind of <laughs> want to mention it just for fun, just for fun. Um, so neuralization, I'm, if we're going to go for a psychological route, I'm, one of the ways it could do that by removing, or I guess removing memories in air quotes is it would block the path of where those memories lie. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they figured it out, how to do that. Um, it seems that they have kind of an infinite amount of time that they can deneuralize or they, that they can neuralize somebody because they were able to neuralize K, who has been with the MIB for years, uh, decades actually. Um, if it was recent memory, I feel like that would be much easier because that might still be in short term and might just be moving on to the long term memory. In terms of deneuralization, my guess is they would probably open up those paths of where all those older memories that were neuralized open up those paths again, which seems to be a much harder process, apparently. Um, so it, again, in terms of psychology, yeah, it, I can see where maybe this technology would be available in the future. Possibly. I don't really, like I said, I only have a psychology minor, so I don't exactly know <laughs> uh, how true this technology is. But once again, that does kind of raise my question of, uh, well, wouldn't he, wouldn't K also know where the location of the light is if he was deneuralized? Because that we taught, we are told was neuralized by himself. So would he know once he is deneuralized where all of the information is at? Probably it's like, uh, I think it's probably an airtight plot. And yeah, you're um, right. I think we just missed it. So yeah, it seems to be a running thing. From the, the at least with these two that we've seen so far, the if we think too much about the plot, the thing just begins to kind of fall apart. Oh yeah, um, because it's meant to be. And I get it; these movies are meant to be fun, and that's totally fine. But at the same time, though, I usually like to look at details at movies, and so I'm not seeing aside from what's on the surface. There isn't really much underneath this one. Like the last one. Well, I like when the writers and everybody a part of it tries a little harder instead of just, hey, the sequ the first one was super popular. Let's make a sequel, put it out during the summer, probably make us a lot of money, and we can just write an incredibly weak script because mm -hmm. everything happens far too easily. Everything is figured out right. far too easily. It's so basic. Like when Serlina infiltrates the Men in Black agency, she basically just wipes him out and takes over like, no problem. Yeah, it, it it takes her no yeah it was pretty much no uh no contest for her to come in and then take over the MIB. Which I mean, even then, that seems even like a big security flaw for yeah an agency that is so uh covert as the MIB. But yeah, it's I don't know. I I can understand what they're going for here, which is they're just trying to be you know a fun blockbuster that you can just go and have fun watching, not really think too hard about it. I understand that, and that's definitely a thing that has not. There's nothing new, and it is still today nothing new. Um, but at the same time, you're right. There isn't too much going into this movie that would make it, I guess, uh, something that you can seriously explore as uh, maybe outside of the lore. I'll say this much: um, it's for, okay. It's more of a visual spectacle than it is an in-depth movie in any sense of the word. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's pretty impressive for 2002. People were excited to see mm -hmm. lots of CGI action on the big screen. Uh, it's a big adventure to today's standards. It's not right. at all. Pe people can do this on television. 
now. Um, can we agree one of the worst scenes is Rip Torn kicking Serlina in the face? Yeah, yeah. Where he does like a flip over her and then he hangs in midair, kicks her multiple times in the face and like nothing comes of it. I just, I thought, what? Yeah, that and there's also earlier when, uh, let me think here. It's when they're in the pizzeria. No, okay, it's when Serlina attacks the pizzeria and takes the guy who runs, who's the cook there. He's ho- she's holding him up by like the face, and you could totally tell he's on strings because his <laughs> hips are positioned way back farther than the rest of his body is. And it's kind of the same here when uh, Zed attacks uh, Serlina. You can tell it's either a uh, body double or b he's on strings. There's a lot of string work here in this movie, and it's very noticeable. Yeah, once again, the the the, the visuals, the CGI, yeah. it's not up to par. Yeah. Um, I did like that they brought back the worms. Mm-hmm. Uh, their animatronics looked probably some of the best visuals, I would say. Yeah, when they're not CG, they do look good. Yeah. There, there are moments where they are fully modeled in CG, and I understand why they did that, because there's like a shot of them walking down the hallway, mm-hmm. and you can tell that they're definitely, in, they're definitely CG. But yeah, when they do use models... For the most part, you can tell, but it isn't like a stark difference between the the CGI model and the animatronic model. They look good, comparatively speaking. But there is, you can definitely tell when they decide to swap between the two. And I like how they introduced them there to Mm -hmm. have them fight alongside of them to retake back the Men in Black headquarters. I feel like they're kind of there and gone. They kind of just drop off the map all of a sudden. Yeah, it's very much a fan service kind of a thing. That's that's the biggest reason why they're in this movie is for fan service, because they were a big hit in the first one. Yeah. So why not bring them back in the second? And I wish they would have had a bit more to do here at the end. I understand they... Honestly, all I remember them is like hanging up in the elevator, mm-hmm. they do some shooting, and then they're gone because J&K and Laura escape in a ship, and then they fly around in a ship. Um, Jay has his own... A boss fight this this movie is also very much following a video game structure of certain quest points um certain characters you have to introduce mini bosses boss fights even in the beginning of the movie when jay is on the worm he Mm -hmm. has to duck and jump just like you would in a video game in order to not get knocked off so yeah, I think that's probably not too much of a surprise because of how pop- popular video games were in video game tie-ins. At the same time, though, that does also kind of take away from the movie because it that begins to make the film feel very systematic. Where which it is, yeah, which it is. I know, and, and I, like we mentioned earlier, it feels a bit too similar to the first one. Um, so yeah, that systematic storytelling here is not helping at all. Uh, now, in terms of positives, again, uh, I do want to say that it, I do like that we are getting into a lot more alien designs. We get to see kind of if the creativity isn't necessarily told in the story, I would say that it's been shifted more towards designing extraterrestrial aliens. And there's a few scenes inside the MIB and then when they go travel around um, like at the post office or even in the locker you get to see a lot of their, a lot of different alien designs. And I think that they look very, very creative compared to, uh, compared to at least the story that is, like we mentioned earlier, a bit more systematic. 
Oh yeah, that that is kind of a fun draw is to see what different types of aliens they come up with and it's more I think it's more creative than most other movies yeah. because most movies don't have aliens in disguise as humans or figuring out different ways to hide how they look. They just I don't know. I don't need, most movies just have the aliens have their mm-hmm. normal appearance. So yeah, the post office probably one of the best scenes and it's kind of funny how Will Smith figures out how to draw them out of hiding he does this kind of crazy beatboxing move yeah um, that's which strange kind me. of forces the other one to bring that um out it's kind of like some type of call mm-hmm. that he feels like he has to respond to but the alien designs are definitely good i i would say the worst design though is serlina when she's just this kind of ambiguous giant plant monster yeah i mean i like her design but I think the CGI definitely takes away from me because you can you can kind of tell when she's CGI and when she's not because the worms, especially in a lot of scenes where there's a lot of worms, they're they're not very uh, covert that they aren't you know CGI. So I mean I I like her character. I like the, her design of her character um, for the most part, but it's that CGI that is dated that I think this tend to take away from it a bit and i'm always say that because there's so much of it here there's so much use of cgi in this movie that i think it begins to take away from it especially now being almost 20 years old yeah and also when um the scene where all of the aliens are coming into the men in black headquarters Mm -hmm. like they're trying to like get their green cards or whatever you want to call it so they can like temporarily stay there a lot of good designs there as well that aren't cgi those are actual i would assume costumes yeah there there is still some costume work along with animatronics here too yeah the like i said the designs of aliens in this movie are honestly really creative i really do enjoy some of the designs that we are getting that we're getting to see here that i'm guessing they're i'm i'm sure that they're pulled from the comics but i do wonder if some of this is original work as well. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's definitely some original work going on here. Um, they don't really talk about um, who did this. Uh, I don't. I doubt it would be... Um... Okay, I have no idea. Oh, yeah, the last guy that we talked about? I can pull up his name. Um, I'm just trying to think of... Rick Baker was the guy who did the prosthetics and... Amata- and uh... Animatronics in the previous movie. Oh yes, uh, yeah, because the last movie was getting Oscar nominations. That's right for its work. I don't. Know, this movie didn't get any type of Oscar nominations. Mm-mm. Didn't go anywhere at the Oscars. It's. I'm. I'm guessing because after five years, it wasn't too, too impressive. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Other I, movies had done it. I. I can agree with that. Now, okay. The Pug Returns, which I know was also kind of a fan favorite from the last one. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about the Pug? Or uh, Frank, I guess is his name. Oh, I mean, I like him well enough. Once again, every seemingly every character is kind of forgettable and throwaway, not really used to the fullest extent I feel like they could be. And he's like, hey, can I be your new partner? And he's like, no way. But I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't really have a problem with him returning. I'm, I'm glad he returned yeah, it seems, I mean, especially with Pug, and, or I guess Frank, I guess you can call him, <laughs> with the Pug and the Worms um, returning, a lot of this movie feels like callbacks as well. Um, once again, also to a fault, because along with the story structure being very, very similar to the first movie, it feels like we're just, it feels like just a completely recycled first movie that we just have a new adventure to go on. Uh, not sure how much I like that. Because it feels like there isn't as much originality here 
aside from maybe some of the alien designs, which, like I mentioned earlier, I wonder how much of that was original and how much of that was pulled from the comics. Yeah, it's very much an episodic-type recycled plot, mm-hmm. and they ensure that uh, a lot of plot points that we thought would be set up for the sequel would be undone so as not to create too much to- confusion for an audience member coming in for the first time. Right. Kay is very inconsequential um, how he left and came back. Um, the partner that Jay was going to have, they really don't talk much about that. So a lot of the stuff they just take away and they just kind of just refill. Yeah. That makes me wonder why, or not really, I guess also kind of why, but at the same time, is K even really necessary for this movie? Because it feels like they just force him into this plot. Like he's the guy who knows the information about the light. The only one. Yeah. The only one who was there. Also, I'd like to bring up the fact that the, uh, the uh, conspiracy, the alien conspiracy, conspiracy theory video somehow exists. I wonder how the logistics of that work because usually MIB is very, uh, they're very conscious on who knows information and will always neuralize somebody who's around. But that aside, I feel like uh, I feel like Tommy Jones's character is all is just very much underserved here in this movie. He he feels like he's only here because once again. Uh, for fan service. There's a slight insinuation that Laura is Kay's daughter. Right. That is very minuscule and it's never confirmed. It's just possible because Kay supposedly loved Laura. He was really sad that she died. Once again, everything is passed over so quickly and it's all inconsequential mm-hmm. that it doesn't really matter. That would be more compelling for Kay to come back into um, the Men in Black service if it was his daughter in order to right. protect his daughter. Right. That would raise an, a major issue why he would deneralize his daughter from his life and the ability to protect her, which kind of speaks against probably him, her not being his daughter. But nevertheless, it's thrown in there right at the very end, which I think this end is it's supposed to be kind of an exciting climax, but it all comes together. It's too cheesy, I think. Yeah, they try to strike this balance between a heartfelt ending and an epic ending. And I don't think that they mesh those two tones together very well because it does kind of flop between uh, look at this mating spectacle with Serlina and then at the same time look at this heartfelt ending with Tommy Lee Jones saying goodbye to Laura and Agent J saying goodbye to Laura. I like I understand what they're going for here, and this movie is as a big theme about love and loss. But at the same time, um, it they don't think they mesh. These two tones don't mesh very well here in this in this ending. No, no, not at all. It, I mean, that's kind of a trope of the early two thousands is to right. have this quasi sappy romance there at the end will they be together or won't they i can see they're capitalizing off of that but like we said it really doesn't pay off in any sort of emotional way are we ready i let me look at my notes real quick and see if i have anything else that i want to talk about oh okay i actually do want to kind of mention the (laughs) the aliens in the closet in the uh in their in the locker Mm -hmm. uh that scene okay i didn't okay we mentioned in the first one that it wasn't that funny. We didn't find it to be really, really all that humorous. There was a few moments where we thought were pretty funny, but over for the majority, it was eh in terms of humor. This one is kind of the same for me, but there are scenes where I physically laughed 
laughed out loud. This locker scene is one of those because they open up this locker and it's this entire alien civilization. They say, Agent K is back and they start singing the national anthem. Mm -hmm. I thought that was hilarious. And then when they start, and then when Agent J gives up his watch and they say, Agent J is our new ruler or something like that. And they start singing the national anthem to him as well. I thought that was absolutely hysterical. There are a couple of moments here where I, I found to be very funny, but overall, once again, I didn't find myself laughing as much as I guess I thought I would. And they had a Moses-type figure coming down, kind of giving their, like, oh, yeah. proclamation. That's right, yeah. Which was kind of strange, but for the most part, I thought that was probably the most creative part of mm-hmm. the movie, was having these aliens he kept in the locker. Yeah. Kind of safeguarding his watch. And Jay, yeah, one of the funnier, more enjoyable parts of the movie. As for overall laughs, only a couple lines made me laugh. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I didn't find this movie really very funny. Yeah. Um, like I, like I said, when he said, uh, hey, we used to work together. And he said, I never worked at a funeral home. Yeah. That was kind of funny. Those aliens. Will Smith scream when he like jumps in front of everybody and Sir, the giant Serlina plant monster grabs him and mm. gives the, the scream when he's being like thrown around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that scream got me to laugh a bit, but otherwise, yeah, that's that's about it. Yeah. Uh, now, in turn, oh, one other thing I like to talk about, like to talk, uh, mention in terms of fun of humor is also the worms. When you get to the worms, it's like penthouse. Mm-hmm. That was also very funny. We mentioned earlier that the worms, at least in the first one, were pretty funny. And I, we, we both kind of enjoyed them. Same here. I think that they play off the worms really, really well with this movie. I think that they are very funny. They are fan service, definitely, but at least they're still funny and enjoyable. This movie works best with dry humor. Yeah. And Tommy Lee Jones does dry humor pretty well. Mm-hmm. I don't think will smith necessarily does but the writing doesn't really give them a chance for that um right. i mean i also liked when they went back into the old apartment and he said don't worry folks i used to live here and he opens up the oh, back yeah. wall and pulls yeah. out the guns and they get the guns but yeah the worms in the apartment were funny where they're like come sit over here and like do you really think you have a chance with her mm-hmm. and just just weird creepy lines like that but yeah. the, the worms were the probably the best invention of this series yeah i would agree and I, that seems to be once again a, a big thing that people latch on to along with Tommy Lee jones and uh will smith especially because them they seem to be the ones who define men in black at least the series is the worms uh, Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Will Smith, always an alien investigation that they go on. There are definitions here that define what a Men in Black movie are, and that's part of it, the reason why. They are very funny, and I do really enjoy them. Also, uh, when they get into the spaceship, uh, they pilot the, they pilot, I guess, the uh, plane version of the car with a dual shock controller. I just wanted to bring that up real, real quick because hence, it's interesting. Uh, hence why they got it on PlayStation 2. Right. It makes sense now that I hear now that I found out uh, about the uh, video game tie-in, but I thought that was just kind of funny. If I'm not mistaken, this is a Sony property as well. Yeah, there was some Sony products around. I also saw Sprint Store um, all around all over the place. That's the old Sprint logo, too. I remember that logo. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's some definite clear endorsements here oh yeah or product placement i guess is a better way of putting it not as bad though as some movies yeah today where it's so in your face especially when it's a sony movie you can definitely tell when those when those are a thing well and it's not as bad as like in the fantastic four movie where the human torch gets knocked into a burger king sign for their flaming hot burger and I, i thought really yeah it's not that in your face at least yeah 
Yeah, it isn't that in your face, but I mean, it's, it's definitely there, but it also at least doesn't take away from the movie. No. Yeah. So, right. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Men in Black 2? Men in Black 2, uh, okay, well, I guess I'll go for positives first and then negatives afterwards. There in terms go. of positives, um, I think that the pacing is much better because uh, at least in the first one, it felt like it did, at moments it dragged. This one, although jokes are flying by so fast, uh, and we did, I did it a positive few times, it's nothing that I really felt was so fast that I lost my, I, I was beginning to lose it, my attention on it. So, and then also very creative in terms of alien design. Um, I do like the fact that they explore characters a bit more here, both J and K, and not really Laura, but they're at least exploring characters here. Oh yeah, and the villain. Unfortunately, this movie also doesn't really have a very good story at all. Um, it feels like most of the thought was put in through the alien designs. Um, that's really about it in terms of creativity. Uh, it's not great. I don't think it's anything super fantastic. Um, I really didn't find much out of it, get much out of it that I was kind of expecting I would. At the end of the day, I don't think I'd recommend it. Uh, I'm probably going to land in, I don't know, probably a four out of 10. It's not, nothing great. I'm not a really big fan of it. Aside from some positives, I don't think that there's really much this movie that would ever bring me back to it i'll be honest i watched this movie on 1.9 times speed oh nice which, oh that would hurt which oh. it, it made it about a 40-ish minute watch it moved along i mean if you thought the pace was quick at an hour and 20 uh. or whatever it was it was it was about a 40-ish minute watch i did this because i just saw it a few months ago and i wasn't going to have it take up an hour and a half of my day Watching it around the length of a TV episode actually makes sense, because this feels like a TV episode. So, in that sense, it was kind of a bit more enjoyable, because it did feel like I was just watching a TV episode, so a lot of those points were more condensed. And these films so far are episodic adventures. Unfortunately, this one lacks the gravity and charm of the first film, however little it had. The story is rote, the characters lack depth and motivation, and everything we see is fairly inconsequential. After my girlfriend and I watched this for the first time, we didn't really get what we just saw. And for some reason, after seeing all three, I initially gave it a 6 out of 10, and thought it was better than the first. Nah, not, not this time. This time, Men in Black 2 gets 4 stars out of 10, and receives a not recommend. And I would place the first movie higher up than this one. I probably would too, but I think I gave it a five when we reviewed it last week. Uh, at the same time, it's also not too far above it. It's it's a pretty uh, it's a mediocre five, I guess you could say, in terms of if I had, if I had to weight my numbers. I would consider the first one to be better, but at the same time, they kind of almost weigh each other out in terms of positives and negatives for me. But the first one, I think, is still better. So, yeah, it's two for two for Alan. Uh, two not recommends. The Men in Black series is not shaping up well. No, it's not. I've, and that's surprising to me because I've heard so much about it. I've heard so many great things. People love it. And, yeah, haven't heard, haven't really seen anything fantastic about it yet. And maybe that's just because I've, I, uh, maybe that's just because I'm used to much different films than this. I don't know. Well, I will say this. I am looking forward to revisiting Men in Black 3 because they do something a bit different with it. I've seen it. I'm not going to tell you just quite yet where it places for me, 
but I will say that I am looking forward to revisiting it and seeing what Alan thinks for the first time. Sometimes the sequels are better than the original. Mm. We, I personally saw that with uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, that seems to be all the general cons- consensus of that one, at least with those who like Fury Road. So next week we will be coming black. We will be coming black. <laughs> we will be back in black with our review of Men in Black 3, which for the moment will end the series, but we will be um, coming back with Men in Black International when that hits theaters this summer. But before we do Men in Black International, we will be returning to our M. Night Shyamalan retrospective series. It's been about three weeks since we reviewed The Village, so you still do have time to catch up on uh, the previous six M. Night Shyamalan films before we finish up with like seven more of his movies or something like that. Uh, so we will be coming back after Men in Black 3 with Lady in the Water, the hap- and then The Happening the week after that. Oh, I'm excited for that one. I've already seen it like multiple times. I'm so excited to watch it again. I have heard the most wonderful things. <laughs> and by wonderful, I mean garbage things. I bought, I just bought it on Blu-ray specifically for us to review it. So I'm very excited. I'm very excited as well to finally see this movie, The Happening, that people have talked so much about. Uh, when I saw it, I, I thought it was a re- redo of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. No. Um, no, very different. Very different. Okay. Very different. So, but after the happening, we're going to take a break from Shyamalan again, because we will need a break after the happening (laughs) from what I hear. We'll be kicking off a new retrospective series, one that I think is great for the summer with Back to the Future. That's right. I'm very excited to watch all three of those again. I am very excited to uh, revisit those and give our thoughts on those. And then after Back to the Future series concludes, that'll be just three weeks in a row. Then we'll be finishing up with Shyamalan. Very nice. So we got a lot of great content prepared for you uh, looking forward to the future. It's going to be a really fun summer. So make sure to go ahead and subscribe right now if you haven't already. Um, That way you won't miss any of our latest episodes. And make sure to share that with your family and friends. We love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you. So we really hope to continue to grow uh, the Silver Screen Guide community and just hear all of your thoughts we want to know what you thought of Men in Black 2. Is this one of your favorites in the series, or do you think this is the low point? Go ahead and let us know in the comment section below, whether that be on Facebook. You can tweet at us um, on the same link as this. And if you're on Podbean, there is a section to comment. And there might be on other podcasting services as well. Go ahead and comment on there as well. Start the conversation rolling. Now, if you are listening on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it if you left us a five-star review. That is not to fuel our egos. Don't get us wrong. Uh, That is for ranking purposes. That does help us get noticed by other people who are looking for a fun movie review podcast where they can get a lot of great in-depth information and they're able to talk about the movie with us as well. And if you are looking for more bonus podcasts, if one a week isn't enough for you or if you want to know our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers a ton of movie news and new trailers are coming out all the time and especially right now that it's the summer then go ahead and head on over to our patreon page for as little as a price of a starbucks cup of coffee it's just three bucks you drink the coffee sure it's good but then it's gone you don't get it anymore this content is yours to keep once you buy into it then you're free to download it even if you do cancel sometime in the future that content is yours 
We're not going to take it back from you. So we have a lot of different tiers depending on what you're able to pay. We appreciate anything that you are able to give us, but you can do a question and answer with us. We do record uh, movie commentaries, so that way you can watch the movie and it's like you're watching it with us because we will talk about the movie as it goes along. And we will say funny things. We will also give some in-depth trivia with it as well. So you get a rich experience with that. So a lot of great content over there. All of that is in the link in the description below. Also, if you're just on our main page there over there at Podbean, those links are on, I believe, the left-hand side of the page. They're all real. It's all really easy to get to. We made it really simple for you uh, to get to it. And that money does not go directly into our pockets. That money goes to... Um, hosting this site it does cost for storage for the podcast bandwidth for the podcast and for the website as well we put that back into silver screen guide in order to make it more of a more enjoyable experience for you and also to keep the episodes free so please go ahead and check out our patreon page and you can get some great bonus content over there thank you for joining me alan sure thing and thank you listeners for joining us on our review of men in black 2 and we will see you next week with men in black 3.